amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello and welcome to episode 127 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today we head to the south coast of England to look at a really complex story straight out of a work of fiction with more twists than a very twisty thing. Firstly, you may have seen the British Podcast Awards take place in May with a Listener's Choice Award. Please, 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 and I mean this, don't vote for this show, as if, as I'm really not into awards. Not just that I never win any, but frankly, I would rather go to a Kings of Leon concert than any awards ceremony. Yeah, I dislike them that much. But please do join me and vote for some of the excellent independent British true crime podcasts out there, such as the True Crime Enthusiasts, They Walk Among Us, Seeing Red, The Outlines Podcast, Men's Rear, The No Remorse Podcast, Murder Mile, and Twisted Britain. They work super hard to bring us great free content, and they want and deserve recognition. A huge thank you to my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's Dean Bull and Lynn Henderson. I'm really so grateful for the support given by every one of you. Thank you so much. I'm delighted that today's show is sponsored by The Economist, the magazine for the kind of person who never stops asking questions and wants to know why the world is the way it is. The Economist is about far more than just economics and finance. It covers a range of subjects from world politics and business to science, technology, arts, the environment, and even most importantly, crime. For example, this week, there is a fascinating article about British ministers still reflecting on whether or not to issue an apology for the actions of the British army in the Amritsar massacre in northwest India, which left 370 people dead almost 100 years ago. The Economist is the smart guide to the forces changing your world. So if you've never stopped asking questions, get your free copy now. To claim your free print copy of The Economist, please just text CRIME to 78070. That is CRIME to 78070 to receive your free print copy of The Economist. Thank you. Let's quickly set some context to the events at the beginning of today's story way back in June 1985. The top-selling single of the year was Jennifer Rush with The Power of Love, keeping Elaine Page and Barbara Dixon off the top spots with I Knew Him So Well. Memo to self, never moan again about the current UK charts. In the US, June saw those wham boys at number one with Everything She Wants. And in the Australian album charts this year, Dire Straits were the bestsellers with Brothers in Arms, followed by The Boss with Born in the USA and Madonna's Like a Virgin. In the news this month, American, Brazilian and West German forensic pathologists confirmed that skeletal remains exhumed in Brazil were Nazi Dr. Josef Mengele, the Nazi doctor known for his barbaric human experimentation in the concentration camp of Auschwitz. In response to the Heisel Stadium disaster the month before, UEFA banned all English football clubs from European competitions 
for an indefinite period, and police arrested 13 suspects in connection with the latest horror attack from the IRA. This time it was the Brighton Hotel bombing of 1984, with Patrick McGee jailed for murder. The number of women engineers is still depressingly low, but back in 1985, Carol Packman was one of an incredibly small number of aviation engineers. She met her husband, Russell, at work. He had a similar skill set. But although their work skills were similar, they were very, very different as personalities. Carol was popular with lots of friends and often described as quiet and somewhat reserved, but always great company. People who met Carol noted that she was always perfectly presented with impeccable manners. Her husband, Russell, on the other hand, well, you know, a guy just like him. He was loud, extroverted, arrogant, full of self-importance, and had a high opinion of himself for reasons it was fairly difficult to understand. In terms of looks, to say he was punching above his weight with Carol is an understatement. And he clearly loved having control over his wife. But despite this, Carol loved him, and they soon had a daughter, Sam, who also idolised her dad. Carol's family and friends failed to see Russell's appeal. When Russell and Carol first met, Russell had moved in with Carol and her family. In a similar situation, you or I would be very respectful and grateful for the support, but this wasn't in Russell's DNA. He caused so much trouble in her parents' house that Carol's parents were put in that dreadful situation that they had to force him to move out. As a result of this upset, Russell exercised his control over Carol and severed all of her ties with her family and friends on her behalf. In these pre-social media days, this meant that they lost complete touch of her life, what she was doing and what she was up to. The couple, with their daughter Sam, moved to a large spacious house on England's south coast in Bournemouth. To outsiders, they were living a great life in a beautiful house. But as we so often hear on this podcast, the view we present to the outside world often only has a tenuous link with reality. Russell was, you won't be surprised to hear, soon having affairs with younger women, and it was thought that Carol was probably having extramarital affairs as well. A guest at one of their dinner parties, which could potentially end in wife swapping, commented later, I wouldn't have said that Carol was an unwilling partner. But Russell took things a step further. A 26-year-old called Patricia Causley, a colleague of Russell's in the aviation industry, moved into their home after selling her flat and giving them the proceeds. One of the reasons for moving in was to help care for their daughter Sam. Another was that despite appearances, the sports car in the driveway of their large detached house, Rolex watches and regular trips abroad, the couple needed the extra cash. But the main reason for Patricia moving in was to continue her secret relationship with Russell. Talking later about Patricia moving in, Sam, who shared a room with her, said, For the first six months, things were weirdly normal. Patricia was almost like a nanny for me. But as time passed, she remembers Patricia sneaking out of the bedroom late at night, and it wasn't to stargaze. I learned later my mum already knew that my dad was having an affair, Sam said, describing how the lodger took her mum's place in the 20-year marriage. 
She recalls how her mum, Carol, reacted with open distress as the pair began to flaunt their relationship. Tensions rose in the family home, and like many young teenagers, the young Sam rowed with her mum, which meant that Carol was getting a hard time from everyone in the house. A really tough environment to survive. According to Sam, Patricia was certainly not her dad's first affair. She told how one night years later, when Sam told her mum about his previous affairs, her dad, Russell, aggressively abused her mum. She said this wasn't a one-off, and Russell was often abusive to Carol. And after seeing this domestic violence, Sam ran away and stayed at a children's home for a while to get some space. She claimed that she did try to make a statement to police about what she'd seen, what she'd seen her dad do to her mum. But Russell, once more exerting control over his family, forcefully stopped her from doing so, and so Sam withdrew her statement. But in the spring of 1985, Sam moved back to the family home. When she did so, she noticed a marked change in her mum, and Carol began to lose her temper and begin fights, not something that she'd ever done previously. The pressure was rising, and Carol became very irritable and almost unbearable to live with. In the June of 1985, Sam was working in London for a short period of time, and one weekend, Russell and Patricia, now not bothering with any sort of pretense about the nature of their relationship, came to visit her and to do some sightseeing. But when the three arrived back on the south coast, there was no sign of Carol. The wardrobe doors were open in Carol's bedroom and some of her dresses had been ripped. And then there was a piece of paper which had her wedding ring on it. The note just said she'd had enough, that she'd decided to leave and she wouldn't be coming back. As Sam looked tearfully at her mum's untouched belongings, her dad said confidently, don't you worry, she'll be back. But it seemed that at 40 years old, Carol had finally had enough of the humiliation by her husband and had decided that she needed to make a fresh start. Sam was devastated, but in a way she understood. And now when she lay in her bed at night, Patricia no longer shared her room. But as the weeks passed, Sam became increasingly concerned about her mum's whereabouts and reported her missing to police. But there was no contact at all from her mum for over six months until shortly before Christmas in 1985. Family was told by officers that Carol had turned up at Bournemouth Police Station and declared herself safe and well, asking that nobody bother her further. This was closure of sorts, and Sam came to accept that her mum had gone and was not coming back any time soon. And life moved on. But although Carol wasn't often spoken about, the already tense relationship between Sam and her dad deteriorated further, and he eventually asked her to leave the house, which she did. With no mum in her life and a very distant father, Sam concentrated on her own life and was soon pregnant with her son and in a loving, committed relationship. But in 1993, she received some shocking news. Her dad, who had since taken Patricia's surname, Causley, was missing at sea and presumed dead. Surely both of Sam's parents couldn't disappear without trace? It transpired that Russell's solicitor at the time, Anthony Hackett-Jones, arranged a sailing trip for him, Russell, Patricia, and another lady, Christine Dyer to cross from southern England to France. 
It was windy with a challenging sea state, and after reaching Guernsey in the Channel Islands late on the first day of sailing, Hackett Jones wanted to wait to let the storm dissipate and then set sail early the next morning. It sounds sensible enough, doesn't it? But Russell, he had other plans. Hackett Jones was awoken in the night by a distressed Patricia, telling him that Russell had taken the ship out to sea. In rather dangerous conditions, Hackett Jones told police that he gave Russell the safest possible course and then went back to sleep. But once again he was woken by Patricia, and this time it was even more serious. It seemed that Russell had fallen overboard and was presumed lost. Extensive searches from the Coast Guard and other vessels in the neighbourhood couldn't find any trace of him, and Russell Causley was assumed dead. If you've lost a parent, even if you weren't close, you will understand the shock and sense of loss it engenders. And Sam was desolate at the loss of her dad. Although they had suffered major issues, she still looked back on the fonder times from her childhood when she spent many happy hours playing chess and cribbage with her dad. But while she mourned his loss, detectives were increasingly suspicious about the events leading to his death. Firstly, on the day that he disappeared, a mysterious Mr Russell had booked a hydrofoil from St Peterport in Guernsey back to Weymouth, paying by cash and leaving at 8.30 the same day as the ticket was booked. And Patricia and Hackett Jones had not been convincing about exactly what had happened to Russell. There were a number of inconsistencies in their stories. Suspicion was so great that Guernsey police asked Russell's life insurance company to alert them if a claim was made. And it was just days later that a claim approaching £800,000 was made. Detectives placed Patricia under surveillance and it wasn't long until she walked into a pub in Brighton where Russell Causley was sitting in the corner, very much alive and well, sipping a beer. As a result of this fraud, Russell spent two years in prison, Hackett Jones spent three, and Patricia was let off with a 12-month good behaviour bond. But the investigation by Guernsey into Causley for fraud led them to speak with Dorset Police for background information, a conversation which took them on a completely different tangent, as told by one of the officers at the time, Donnell. He said, as an aside, It was mentioned that Sam had reported her mum missing some time ago and was very concerned. At that stage, we were hoping it was purely and simply a marriage breakdown. She'd left, he could give us some information, we could trace Carol and put it to bed. I made arrangements to speak to him, but right from the off, he was a very strange character. Donald remembers Causley insisting on tape recording their conversation, and he later told detectives about a letter that he had supposedly received from Carol in 1991. But as was common for Russell Causley, he was very vague on the detail. He also interrupted Patricia. He talked over her before she had the opportunity to talk to answer any of the questions. Eventually, the story arrived at, told by Russell Causley, was that Carol had left the house with a man driving a red Porsche and had gone to Switzerland or Canada. Well, which is it? Officer Donald remembers asking. What's actually happened to Carol? Have you tried to contact her? And Causley couldn't give a proper answer. 
the officers could see very clearly just how controlling he was. But this lack of clarity about Carol led detectives to take a much closer look at his wife's disappearance as they were starting to strongly suspect that Russell Causley had killed his wife as she was an inconvenience to him. They examined when Carol visited the police station 10 years earlier to say that she was okay and didn't want to be found. And they discovered the officer taking her details had failed to carry out even basic ID checks. So was it in fact Carol after all? Or had Russell killed his wife and then tried to cover his tracks by arranging for Carol's being impersonated to prevent a police investigation? It appeared that Carol had been with a young girl and there is speculation that this was Patricia dressed as Carol and potentially with the daughter Sam. Others disagree with this analysis and say it would be too much of a chance to take for Russell and Patricia as if they were questioned in detail and their deceit uncovered. It could lead to all sorts of questions and potentially their arrest for murder. So why risk it? But there were further problems uncovered around Carol's disappearance. Detectives tracked her last confirmed sighting to a solicitor's office, where she'd inquired about a divorce. The solicitor had given her information, and he was expecting her to come back to him. But that never happened. And detectives discovered that Carol had stopped going to the doctor, despite having a variety of medical issues. She also hadn't visited the dentist, contacted her friends or any of her neighbours. But was this because she was a bright woman with resources and had just managed to effectively disappear, as so many people do every year? But the fact of the matter was that she'd been missing for more than eight years and nobody knew where she was or had ever really looked for her. Tony Knott, the detective chief inspector who had led the investigation for Dorset Police, admits that the force had been sloppy after Carol was first reported missing. It was a major mistake by the police, he says. I'm afraid we didn't do well there. Investigations showed that Carol appeared to have gone to Montreal in Canada to work after her disappearance. But it was found that it hadn't been Carol after all, but Patricia using her Canadian work permit. She was soon rumbled and sent back. But was she just using Carol's permit because it was simple and saved her the hassle of doing her own? Or was it something more sinister? Police then found forgeries on land registry documents, which allowed Russell Causley to sell their jointly owned house. And a former boyfriend of Patricia told how Patricia began to confide in him and told him that she pretended to be Carol on a number of occasions, including using her passport and wearing a wig to travel to Italy and Germany. In 1990, Patricia contacted a solicitor pretending to be Carol living overseas and signed over Carol's portion of the family home so they could sell it in person. The letter she wrote to the solicitor was addressed in West Germany, and strangely, Russell, when writing a letter to his solicitors on the subject matter, also addressed it from West Germany. A handwriting expert was shown Carol's signature, and some of her old writing, and she clearly saw a huge discrepancy between the two, and was confident enough in what she had seen, to say she would stand up in court to testify that it was a forgery. Then there were two prisoners who got to know Russell in his time in the slammer for the insurance fraud, and they testified to the fact that Russell had told them in confidence that he'd killed his wife and got shot of her body. 
Of course, prisoners aren't the greatest witnesses for so many reasons. But the case against Russell was growing, with detectives believing that all the ingredients were there to suggest he had killed his wife. After all, nobody else had the opportunity or the motive. But one major obstacle remained. There was no body. Chief Inspector Knott of Dorset Police told how forensic archaeologists scoured cemeteries in Bournemouth and drain pipes in the New Forest after Causley confessed to inmates that he'd killed her. But his accounts of hitting her over an axe and then disposing of her body in acid were inconsistent. Deliberately so, believes not. It was all a game of cat and mouse, he said. But after some of Carol's belongings were found in a storage unit that Causley had access to, the Crown Prosecution Service decided that there was sufficient evidence to prosecute. And in the August of 1995, Russell Causley was arrested on suspicion of the murder of Carol Packman. Upon searching his house, police found lots of dominant pornographic material, although I do believe there was nothing from the Rochdale sauna scene. Doctor Records even refers to him as a sexual deviant, whatever that means for treating his wife Carol as a baby doll. At his trial, he was found unanimously guilty of murder at Winchester Crown Court in 1996 and jailed. But in June 2003, his conviction was quashed after his alleged confessions were deemed unsafe. A retrial found him guilty a year later, after his sister broke her silence, telling jurors that she too had heard her brother admit his crime. Russell Causley is an intelligent man, said police officer Knott. But he was at a point where his marriage was beyond saving. Whereas most normal people would go and see a solicitor and get a divorce, Russell Causley thought he could keep the house, keep his mistress, keep everything and get rid of his wife, get rid of the body and he wouldn't be caught. Well, he was wrong. He was caught. Sentencing Causley to life in prison Mrs Justice Hazlitt described him as a wicked person. Not only did you kill your wife and somehow dispose of her body, she told him, you left your daughter in a permanent state of ignorance as to her mum's fate. She said that Causley was a totally ruthless, self-centred and calculating killer who had carried out a cold-blooded killing for financial gain, adding, Your mistress appears to be of the same kind and I'm not surprised she's not dared show her face in this court. You are, in my judgment, a quite wicked pair. Sam and Carol's family begged Russell Causley to tell them where Carol's body was so they could properly lay her to rest. But no joy. Then in the summer of 2014, almost 20 years after his conviction, Patricia broke off her relationship with Russell, and he started writing letters. In one, he tells how he murdered his wife, saying that he and Carol were arguing when he hit her, knocked her unconscious, and choked her airways with a tie. To dispose of the body, he said he covered her in a blanket and placed her on a fire in his backyard, saying how he kept the fire burning for three days until there was only ash remaining. He then filled three buckets full of the ash and proceeded to throw them in a number of different locations. He said it was after this that he arranged a trip to London to see Sam we mentioned earlier in the podcast. But before he left his home, he stage managed a scene with a note, her wedding ring, 
and ripped clothes. This seemed plausible, but police deemed the new evidence inconsequential as he was a proven liar, and the method of getting rid of her body wasn't realistic, they didn't think. But later scientific research proved it was, and a dig was done in the backyard to find any remains, but none were found. But Russell had a different story in a further letter, saying how he had lied about the fire, and her body is actually somewhere far more peaceful, and he isn't willing to admit where it is, as he doesn't wish it to be touched. In this letter, he also implicated his lover Patricia, saying she was involved in moving the body and potentially planning murder. But then he wrote one final letter, saying that he hadn't actually murdered Carol, stating that it was all driven by losing the love of his life, Patricia. And this case was in the news again recently, when the Justice Minister stepped in to stop Russell Causley being moved to an open prison, which is just one step from the parole that he covets. What do you make of what we've heard today? Russell Causley is clearly a most unpleasant man, but is he a murderer? He's still one of the few men in British history to be charged of murder with nobody being found, and it seems unlikely that it ever will. And what of Patricia? Was it Patricia who walked into the police station all those years ago, pretending to be Carol, and therefore closing the missing person's case? Was it definitely Patricia who signed over the deed to the house so it could be sold? If so, is it possible she could have done that with such confidence if she didn't know that Carol was dead and could turn up at any moment? But then if she knew that Carol was dead, what was her involvement in the death? It appears likely that Russell did kill his wife, but is all this circumstantial evidence just knitted together to make this appear to be the case? The late, highly respected journalist Bob Woofenden, who specialised in miscarriages of justice, believes, as do many, that Causley isn't guilty, as in reality, there is no evidence for murder. Take a look at what he writes. I think it's pretty convincing. Three points in particular that he makes really stand out for me, and they are these. Number one, for any investigator going back over all this ground, there was an obvious first question. If Causley had indeed killed his wife, it would mean that the first crime had been the perfect murder. But the second had been an insurance fraud of such laughable incompetence that it could have been picked apart by schoolchildren. Do the two add up? And number two. He cites the evidence of Brian and Shirley Tizard, the next-door neighbours who knew Carol well, and whom she visited the day before she disappeared. She told me she was thinking of leaving, said Brian Tizard. She seemed quite calm, quite determined on the path she wanted to take, and she wanted to move on with her life. She was a very competent lady, and had she put her mind to it, she probably could have disappeared. His wife Shirley later added in an interview, Do you want me to be honest? I still have a question mark in my mind. Did she, in fact, get away? And number three, he turns to Russell Causley's confession, saying, The confession itself did not surprise me. There are three considerations here. The first is that after 20 years in prison, a prisoner's mental faculties may understandably deteriorate. The second is the constant pressure they are under to confess to their crime. 
They suffer psychological torment, being told again and again that if they do not confess, they will never be released. It is not surprising that some crack. The third point is that Causey's mental equilibrium would undoubtedly have been shattered when in August 2014, Patricia broke off her relationship with him. This finally pushed him over the edge. I would give anything, Russell wrote, even now, to hear Trish's voice again, just one more time. I wonder if we would ever know for sure just what happened to Carol Packman. It looks like the only person who knows the answer sits in his cell as you listen to this. And it looks like he isn't telling. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please do join me on Facebook to discuss this story and any other aspects of UK true crime. If you want to be a better person than your neighbour or the vast majority of the global population, then please support this show on Patreon at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. 27 full-length episodes, lots more exclusive content. What else isn't there to like? It will make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. Okay, so that's it for me for today. So please don't forget to vote for one of the excellent British true crime podcasts for the Listener's Choice Awards and get your copy of The Economist by texting CRIME to 78070. As for me, I'm off to put the needle on the record for the record. So on that bombshell, it's cheerio from me and remember, stay classy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.